chapter 2. And, and by the way, if you missed last week, I would encourage you to pull that one back up, look on the archive. Pastor Brian preached probably the best message I've ever heard on a tough topic, yes. <clears throat> it was done in love and kindness, and if you're wondering what the topic was, it was about same-sex attraction. And that's a tough topic, but it was literally probably the best sermon I've ever personally heard, and I hope a lot of you would agree with me. So if you missed it, pull it up. Um, but this week, we're going to be in chapter 2, so get your Bible, get your phone, get online, pull the notes up if you'd like. I'll read the verses, but if you want to track along with us, we're going to start in Romans chapter 2, verse 1. But last week, if you were here, we finished up chapter 1, and we, we heard about God's judgment against a group of people I would call, they were behaving badly, for lack of a better term, they were behaving badly. Well, this week, it's going to be in some ways a little tougher on all the rest of us, myself included, the whole rest of the church. Because he's going to address some people that maybe think they're behaving better. They think they're more moral than that other little small subgroup. But really, they, they know in their heart they're not exactly behaving any better. They know they have unconfessed sin in their own life. And then Paul's going to kind of address all that group of people tonight, which is, to be honest, a much bigger group. So let's read verse 1. Romans 2, verse 1. Here's what it says. You, therefore... All of us, is the you, by the way, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. And here's why. Let's look at that last part of the sentence. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. And we'll get to same things in a few minutes. So why would they have no excuse? Well, we have to remember who Paul is talking to. He traveled to Rome to talk to the early church. So he's talking to, in some ways, Calvary Chapel, Rome. Not really, but that's my illustration. It's us. He's not talking to the pagans in the town square. He's talking to the church. All these verses are to the church. Keep that in mind as we go through some of these tough ones tonight. But that's why they knew and had no excuse. They had been preached to. They had read the scrolls. They had read the word. They knew the word. That's why Paul tells them, you've got no excuse. And in their mind, they did have an excuse. They thought, well, we're not doing those same sex sins that he talked to last week. We are not doing those things. So we're probably doing okay. We can think the same thing sometimes. Well, Jesus told a similar parable. Um, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but over in Luke chapter 18, it's kind of a parable on spiritual pride, and I'm going to sort of just paraphrase it. You know the story. Basically, there's a tax collector on the corner, and there's a Pharisee beside him, and they're both praying. And the Pharisee, his prayer more or less goes, at least I'm not like that guy. At least I'm not him. That's what the church was doing. They were thinking, at least we're not doing that sin. But the tax collector, when he prays, remember the story? He says, God, have mercy on me. I'm just a sinner. We will look at the last verse on screen. I think they already popped it up. Here's what it says. I tell you, and this is Jesus, that man, and that man is the, that's my parentheses, the tax collector, rather than the other, rather than the spiritual guy, the tax collector went home justified before God. And here's the reason. Jesus follows up with the reason. For all those who exalt themselves, all those who are prideful, especially spiritual prideful, will be humbled. But look what he says on the other side when he flips it around. All those who humble themselves, like that tax collector, will be exalted. It's a similar concept than what we're covering tonight. So we all, we all know through the whole Bible, God hates pride, right? We know that. But I think he really hates spiritual pride even more than sort of personal pride because then we become spiritually prideful. We think we don't maybe have to obey all the commands because at least we're not doing that thing. Scripture never says that. And really, there's a verse, let me read it. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. That verse is so important. It's in three different places exactly the same way. He gave it to us in Proverbs 3.34. He gave it back to us in James 4, 6, and finally he put it in 1 Peter 5, 5. Same exact verse, and it's reference to the other two occurrences both times. God resists the proud, and it brings up our first main point if you're taking notes. Here's our first point. If we think we're better than other people, 
pridefully think we're better, by the way, we've actually become lower than them in God's eyes, just like that tax collector and the Pharisee. The Pharisee thought he was superior, but what did God tell us? He will be humbled, the other guy will be exalted. So if we think we're superior because we're spiritually a lot better than those other sinners, we have instantly put ourselves, it's like an oxymoron almost. We've, we think we're better, but in God's eyes, we just became way lower. Does that make sense? So we have to be careful with that one. Let's keep reading, verse two. Verse two of Romans, it says, now we know, and he's gonna give a reason of why he's being so kind of harsh in a way. We know that God's judgment against those who do such things, such things we'll get to, is based on truth. So God is, we know in Scripture, always fair, always just. He's always truthful. He doesn't change. His word never changes. But he is also the ultimate judge. And, and since he's a fair and just judge, he always judges us and really the world on facts. It's facts and facts alone. It's not public opinion. It's not what the TV says. It's facts. The facts of their behavior is what he's going to judge people but I've mentioned the same things in verse 1. I just mentioned such things in verse 2. If you want to, you can flip back, but I'm going to read it out loud. Go back to chapter 1 and verse 29. Brian read these last week. Let me read us what such things and same things are. So he's passed those sexual sins, and he starts itemizing all the rest of the stuff. And this is what Paul is saying. You're doing these to the church. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, Greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, quarreling, that's equal to murder, that's what it says, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, boastful, they even invent new ways of sinning. They disobey their parents. Does that ring a bell to anybody? Do any of us disobey our parents? Are your kids disobeying you today and tonight? Mine still are, I'll tell you, but you know, they're kids. I know better. We know better. And look what verse 31 says, the last of these such things. They refuse to understand, they break their promises, they're heartless, and they have no mercy. That's the such things, the same things when he's telling the church, you're doing the same things. So let's read verse 3 now that we know what such things are. So when you, when you the church, when I, it's talking to me too, by the way, a mere human being pass judgment on them that are doing those things, and yet you do the same things, he asked a great question. Do you think you're going to escape God's judgment? Well, the answer is no, because we just learned that God is full of truth and justice. He's going to judge us on the truth, on the facts. So if we are doing those bad things, we're going to face judgment also. And, and I'll explain more of this as we go along, because don't think that we're going to all of a sudden all be killed by lightning bolts for making a mistake. That's not what this verse is talking about. He's more addressing a lifestyle, a pattern of willful disobedience. But he's asking this group of people that really think they're morally superior than those other sinners... What are you going to do to escape God's judgment? What are you going to do to explain about your behavior when you get there? Let's, so let's read verse 4. It says, Or do you show contempt for, his, or for, for the riches of his kindness, his forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? I kind of skimmed across that word forbearance. We don't hear that word much anymore. It's really an older word. It's kind of uncommon in today's language. Um, and it really means, if you look it up, I did the homework for you. Aren't you glad? You don't have to go look it up on Google right now. Forbearance means restraint in applying a penalty, not withholding, restraining, or pausing a debt. Pausing a debt, like a sin debt that Jesus paid for at the cross. That kind of debt. But you will hear this word every now and then if you're an accountant in the room, and I know there's a few in here because I see you. Forbearance can also apply to a mortgage. It's a mortgage term. And what that means when you might have heard it on your own mortgage back during COVID. Remember, you could pause your mortgage payment with no penalty. That is called forbearance. It's a pause of a penalty due or a payment due. So Paul is asking the church, 
do you show contempt by, you're trying to pause God's judgment. You're trying to pause his patience, his forbearance, because God is kind. He's gracious. He's so patient with you. When you behave badly and live this lifestyle of willful disobedience, sin, you're really abusing his forbearance and his grace and his mercy. Because all that's designed to lead you to repentance. That's that end of that verse. And you're not even repenting. You're not even sorry for it, it doesn't look like. So we also see in that verse what, what all those things are designed to do, to bring us to a place of repentance. But, you know, that's another big word we don't hear much unless you're at church, repentance. You don't usually hear that at Publix or anything like that. But we can mix up three similar words, regret, remorse, and repentance, and there's a huge difference. Let's take a look. I think we have them on the screen. Regret. We'll start with that one. That's probably the worst of the three, by the way. That's why it's on top. That's more like a self-pity. It's mainly I'm, I'm sorry for what it cost me or I lost. In other words, my sin got discovered. I have regret because I got in trouble. I'm not really sorry for it, in other words. I don't really care about the pain I caused all of you. Uh, cause, look what it also says. Or the heartache it caused God. I'm not really sorry. I'm more sorry I got caught. That's what regret is. Remorse is a little better, but it's still not great. It's, it's better, but not good. That is a deep sorrow. So at least now I'm sad. I'm sorrowful about it. But it's really just me being emotionally, it's more a personal thing again. It's me being emotionally sad that I've maybe lost all these things, my status, my, my public opinion, my valuables, whatever I've lost. It's an emotional thing. I'm sad and I'm feeling guilty, but not for the right reason. The last one is the one we want. That's what Scripture is directing us to do. Look at what repentance means. It's a decision. You feel guilty, so number two, remorse can lead you to repentance because you do need to feel guilty first, but it's a decision to change my behavior, to change your behavior. And when we truly repent, and, and what did John preach? A, a repentance, remember? It was a rep Always repent, repent. Not just be sorry for it, not just be remorseful. Repent, because then the Holy Spirit joins us and helps us say no to sin. And we definitely need that portion. We have to have the power of the Holy Spirit because then he will guide and empower that change. So regret and remorse aren't that hot. We want to find a place of repentance where we're not just sorry for what we lost or sad or guilty. We really want to do the right thing and start behaving better like Scripture calls us to do. But let's read verse 5. Let's see how they're doing on this repentance. Verse 5 says, but, but is never good in the Bible usually, because of your stubbornness, and look what comes next, your unrepentant heart. So they don't have repentance. You are, here's another kind of a strange concept in a way, you are storing up wrath, storing up wrath. I'll talk about that in a second. Against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Well, we're all pretty familiar with storing up treasure in heaven, aren't we? We like that one. Store up your treasure. Remember, not down here where moss and rust destroy it all, which is more doing kingdom work, doing God stuff. But on the flip side of that concept, this verse tells us that some people, and we do not want to be those people, by the way, they will not store up treasure. They will store up wrath. And it's sitting there waiting to be fairly and justly distributed by the Lord on Judgment Day. And some will be in that category, and some in this audience Paul was talking to apparently were in that category. And it's all because, once again, let's go back to the first part of their unrepentant heart. Let's move to verse 6. It, it reminds us how fair God is. God will repay each person, each of us, according to what they have done. But he's not talking once again about a one-time mistake. He's talking about a willful pattern, that long list of those such things I just read us. It's a lifestyle of sin, not a mistake, a temporary mistake. God is graceful. He wants to forgive us. That's what forbearance is about. That's what grace is about. That's what mercy is about. But unfortunately, there's some doctrine out there in the modern church that kind of preaches the term I like to call cheap grace. In other words, 
God's going to forgive you. Just live your wife any old way you want. Just go back next week to Calvary Chapel and ask for mercy. And the pastor will help you pray every weekend. Then go live your life next week any way you want. Come back again for grace. That's cheap grace. That's devaluing what God has done on the cross for us. That's not what Scripture teaches at all. It's about repentance and trying to do the best we can to change then asking the Holy Spirit to help us be the agent of that change. Because remember, once again, I want to keep pointing this out. He's talking to the church. This is not to the pagan Roman society of the day. This is the early church. Because the church knows better. They've heard sermons just like you've heard sermons. Because, you know, we're human, we're people. We like to sometimes make excuses, don't we? Well, nobody ever told me that. Let's look at a verse about that. It's Proverbs 24. Here's what it says. And by the way, the CCM is my insertion. Let me just be clear. That's not in your Bible. I'm sure you know that by now. If you, and easy this mean the church, that's why I put CCM. If you say, if all of you say tonight, we knew nothing about this. We knew nothing about this repentance. I would probably not believe you because I was here last weekend when Brian preached that excellent sermon. We hear that weekly here at Calvary Chapel, don't we? If anything, you guys are well-informed because we're going to teach God's Word line by line, verse by verse, where you won't really have the loophole of saying, I didn't know that. I never heard that. If anything, we're going to give you the opposite. Romans 2 tonight is pretty tough on us as the church. It says, you do know better. You have no excuse, is how Paul put it. Because let's read the rest. Does he, and that's God, who weighs our heart not perceive it, does he who guards your life know it? Well, yes, he's God. He knows it anyway. We can't say, I never knew that, because God knows we do. Will he not repay everyone according to what they've done? And the answer is yes on judgment day. But here's the good news for us. If you're a Christ follower, if you're a believer, you don't go to that judgment. You go to a different judgment based on did you receive Jesus and you get crowns and treasure that you stored up, you get judged on what you did with you know, the gifts God gave you if you're a believer. If you're not a believer and you're living this immoral lifestyle that Paul's talking to, and you could be a churchgoer, by the way, living that lifestyle. This is a big church. You could hide on the back row very easily. How do I know? Because I did that for 10 years. That's part of my testimony. But God knows I was behaving badly. He knows if you're behaving badly. And someday, he's going to repay us for what we've done. But look in verse 7. This verse should encourage us, though. This is a verse for hopefully most of us in the room. To those who by persistence, by in do, who persist by doing good, seek glory, honor, immortality, he will give eternal life. So if we persist in doing what God has called us to do, which is really obey his commands, if we persist in making the effort, not being perfect, because nobody's perfect, we're still going to mess up. We're still going to make mistakes. We're still going to sin. But it shouldn't be a willful lifestyle, a pattern of sinful disobedience. That's who Paul is talking to. Because verse 7 says, if we persist in trying and asking the Holy Spirit for help, and by the way, persistent just means staying with it. And, and really it means, if you read, really look at the original definition, it's staying with it despite a lot of opposition or difficulty. Even when your life is difficult, stay with Christianity. That's what persistence really means. We'll get a reward. Let's look at a verse out of James on the screen. James 1. God will bless all of you, me included if I do this, who patiently endure the testing and the trials and the temptations of life, and afterward we, they, will receive the crown of life which is salvation. We will receive eternal salvation that God has promised to those who love him. We just have to do our part, which is, once again, not to be perfect, to be persistent, to make our effort to behave better and not behave badly like all those people we read about in the tail end of chapter 1. Because he kind of flips that script. You know, tonight is a contrast. If you do this, you get this reward. If you don't do this, you got judgment coming. This is what verse 8 is about. Let's read eight together. But for those who are self-seeking, who reject the truth of God's word, and they follow evil. That's the key. Follow evil, a lifestyle of disobedience. 
If you follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. That's what you're storing up. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. But look at this tail end of this sentence. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. So there's clearly like a, a, almost an order or a pattern, and I'll explain that after I talk about this follow evil for a second. But I want us to be really clear. Don't feel condemned that you messed up this past week, maybe even today. Or don't be condemned if you make a mistake this coming weekend. Jesus has forgiven us for our mistakes and our sin. Remember past, present, and future. Paul is talking about a willful pattern, a lifestyle of disobedience. But what is this first for the Jew, next for the Gentile about? And we have some Jewish people here on Wednesday night. Well, if you go back to Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I'm not going to really go back there and read it, but it, remember it's salvation, it said, is first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Because they, if you remember your Bible, they got the offer of salvation first. Now, they rejected it for the most part. Some accepted, but most rejected. So since they got the first offer for salvation, now, same flip the script concept, now they're first in line for punishment. So you got the first shot at salvation. When you rejected the offer, now you got first in line for punishment. It's kind of connected. And we're going to see that through other verses tonight as we keep reading. Let's read verse 10. But, it's all of you again, hopefully. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good or tries their best to do good. Not about good works, just tries to obey. But look again, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. You know, our God does not show favoritism, but clearly in Scripture, the Jews are God's chosen people. They got the first offer. So they get the first offer of salvation. It kind of puts them also the first in line for punishment. And this is the third time we've seen this addressed. But he's also speaking to a certain audience. We have to keep this also in context of who he's talking to. This is the early church in Rome. It's most likely a mixed audience of Jews that have become Messianic Jews. They're now believers in Jesus. And the other part of the room, maybe it's a 50-50 split. We don't really know. Scripture doesn't say. But it's a mixed audience of Jews and Gentiles. We kind of have that in a small way tonight here. But he's addressing the Jewish belief because the Jewish people of the day and some of our Jewish people that we know, our neighbors, our co-workers still believe this, by the way. They think because they're the chosen people in the Old Testament, God's going to give them a special break forever. They get a free pass no matter what they do, how they behave. And even some of the Jewish rabbis of the day, they were teaching this kind of doctrine that God would use two judgments, one for the Jews that was not as harsh, one for us Gentiles that was pretty strict. It was like a separate judgment. And Paul is correcting that. He just told us God does not show favoritism. So he's trying to correct that false belief. He's going to correct another false belief later tonight as I keep reading. But let's read verse 12. He makes it real clear. All who sin apart from the law, that would be Gentiles, by the way, will also perish apart from the law. But then he continues, all who sin, who have that long list of sins we just read, all of the Jews who sin under the law will be then judged by the law. And if you know your Bible, all of us know by now, you can't keep the law. That's why God sent Jesus. The law is designed to point us toward a better way, which was Jesus. Nobody can keep it because the law requires perfection. A 99 on that test won't get you into heaven. It takes 100, and none of us can make 100 on the sin test. So there's, it's really no way to get there, and that's why they had to have animal sacrifice. So he's covering really the whole room. If you sin apart from the law, you're going to perish. But if you sin under the law, you're going to be judged by the law and perish too, which brings up our second main point if you're taking notes. This is our second thing to write. We're not judged nowadays for having the law or not having the law. Look what we're judged for. Our judgment is based on having or not having Jesus. That's the new standard. That's the new covenant. That's our better way, as I just called it. 
because they had to try their best to obey the law. They couldn't do it, so they had to kill poor animals and put their blood on the altar to pay for their sin. Our way, we're not judged by that. That's the Old Testament law. We're judged on what did you do with my son Jesus? In other words, did you believe in him? And not just did you believe in him, did you follow him? Did you obey him? Which was a lot of Brian's focus this weekend. And, you know, God is really smart. You know that, by the way? God is really smart. This weekend, if you were here, it was a lot about obedience, wasn't it? Well, tonight, I'm just getting started on obedience. We're going to hammer obedience. And don't yell at me. I didn't write it. It's in the book. But the two sermons connect in a way none of us planned. We didn't script this weekend and this Wednesday like this. God lined it up, once again, because he's God. He's smart. He knew we need to hear about obedience, is my opinion, including me. Maybe I need to hear it worse than you guys. That's why he made me teach it. You can tell me later if you believe I'm right or not. I already heard a few amens, so I think I'm right. <clears throat> but um, back to that slide for a second. I kind of made the case, we're really judged on what do we do with Jesus. That's a question for everybody in this room and everybody watching online, everybody in the commons. What did you do with Jesus? And if you don't have the right answer, in other words, I'm not following him, I'm not obeying him, please come down the end tonight and let's pray a prayer and let's fix that. Let's get you started on walking the walk of Christianity. And it's not a magic prayer, but we would just kind of pray together, God, I'm a sinner. I want to follow you in your commands. And we can do that tonight if you're interested at the end. Let's read verse 13. Let's move on. Verse 13 says, For it is not those who hear the law that are righteous. In other words, sitting in this room, listening to this sermon won't save you. It's not who hear the law. That's not what makes you righteous in God's sight. But look what it says next in verse 13. It is those who obey. Remember, I told you we're going to hammer obedience it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Jesus spoke, this is Paul, but Jesus himself spoke over and over about obedience. One of my favorite verses is pretty short. It's Luke 6. Luke 6, 46. You know it, trust me. We all know this one. Jesus is asking me and all of you the same question. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not, what? Do. Obey, act. It's an action word. Why don't you do what I say? It's not about knowing. It's about doing, obeying, obedience. And that's Jesus' words. Paul knows what he's talking about, but Jesus is God. God says, why do you know and not obey? Because we're people. We're sinful people, that's why. He already knows the answer, but he wants us to say it. We're just sinful, disobedient people. But he says, you put the effort in, I'll send the Holy Spirit, it'll be a package deal, he will help you obey me. Let's keep reading, verse 14. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature the things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they don't have the law. That can be a little confusing. If you do by nature the things of the law, you can become a law to yourself. It almost sounds, if you read it too fast, that Paul is saying some of the Gentiles are keeping the law, so they're, they're okay. That is exactly not what he's saying. It's really the opposite of what he's saying. He's trying to tell the people, like he's wanting to tell all of us, good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people. People that follow Jesus go to heaven because they may look on the surface, these Gentiles Paul's describing, because he says they do by nature the things of the law. It looks on the surface. It appears they're obeying, but they're not keeping it. You don't know what they're doing at home behind closed doors, that long list he read us at the first of the sermon tonight. He says they're not fulfilling the law. Remember I just said it would take 100% fulfillment, so who could ever do that? Nobody. So the law can never save you. It's designed to point us toward the Messiah. Let's read verse 15. But he does explain a little bit why some Gentiles, why some of us have a, like a, a morality or a, a good conscience. In verse 15 it says, these Gentiles that are sort of behaving pretty good, 
They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their conscience is bearing witness, and their thoughts are sometimes accusing them, but other times their thoughts defend them. This verse is a great reminder, and there's other places in Scripture that also say the same concept, that God has written, or I would use the word installed, he has installed into me and all of you a basic knowledge of right and wrong, or inner morality. It says the requirements of God's law is written internally on our heart. Why would God do that? Well, there's a great reason why. It's so an unsaved person that doesn't know God yet will be prompted to seek God, to want to have the things of God, because to, to, they, they know internally, like all of us, we might have thought we were kind of good people, but we knew in our heart we weren't perfect people, which is what the law would have required. And by the way, this verse also addresses, I get this question sometime, what about a person that lives in the jungle in a loincloth that never heard the gospel? You ever heard that one? It's a pretty common question, especially for people that don't believe in God, because they want a loophole. They want a, a loophole to say, your God is mean. He would kill that poor native tribesman that never heard about Jesus. That verse we just read said God puts his principles internally on our, it's written on our heart, because his internal word will accuse us of being morally wrong. And it would drive us to know more about Jesus. And then also it says it would encourage us to do right, to try to be a better person, but then realize I can't do this. I am not a good person. i got to find some help, and the help is Jesus. It's all designed to funnel us toward Jesus. That's why it's written in our heart. So don't feel bad about the poor native in the loincloth. God has written on his heart he needs Jesus too. And it will eventually prompt him to run into one of you on a mission trip and talk about Jesus. He needs to talk about Jesus and commit his life to God just like we all did. Which brings up our third main point if we're taking notes. We're all judged by God's truth, his requirements. And on all of us, it's written internally. But if you're here tonight and in any modern society, I would say, it's also written right here. It's internal, but it's also external. He wrote them on our hearts, but also in the Bible. And so once again, remember Paul said earlier tonight, you have no excuse. This is why he's saying you have no excuse. Because even if you fell asleep in church, last time Dave talked up there, it's in internally in your heart. I, I wrote it two places to make sure you didn't sleep through this. Either way, you got no free pass. That's what Paul is really saying. Let's read verse 16. <clears throat> Now he's going to describe when this judgment would happen. Verse 16 says, This will take place, this judgment, on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus, as my gospel declares. Because remember in Scripture, Jesus told us, I'm not the judge, God the Father is. I only do the Father's will, the will of who sent me. In John 12, 47, here's, here's an exact quote from Jesus. I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He's our Savior. He's our salvation. He is our sort of way we get to heaven and not have to be a perfect keeper of the law. He's not the judge. God the Father is. Then how are we judged? That verse we just read, let me reread it. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ. Not by Jesus, through Jesus. Big difference. We're judged through Jesus, back to something I said about five minutes ago. What did we do with Jesus? Did we receive him? Did we accept him? Did we follow him? Or did we blow him off and ignore him? That's what we're going to be judged on. What did you do with my son? Let's read a verse out of John. It's on screen for us. I'm saving you tonight from all that flipping. We're reading Romans. I'm putting all the extra verses so we can just read them together. John 1, verse 11 and 12. Here's what it says. He came, that's Jesus, to that which was not his own, which was, excuse me, was his own, that's the Jews, but his own, the Jews, did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, all of you, look what it says, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We have the right to be God's children. 
same as you'll be equal to Jesus in heaven in some ways. Now, Jesus is God. Don't, don't misconstrue what I'm saying. But we'll be children of God. And God, in other verses, you know John three sixteen. God sent who? His only begotten son. You are God's son and daughters also. You're not God. I'm not God. We're a different kind of son and daughter, but we're God's children. He loves, think about how you love your children. Brian talked about that this weekend. He loves us like we're his biological children. Because in Genesis, it does say we are made in God's image. So we are his sons and daughters. He wants us to be in heaven. He makes every way for us to get there. So really, if we don't get there, whose fault is it? Mine. He gives us internal knowledge, external knowledge. He puts people like me up here to yell at you about it. We have no excuse. Paul has told us that all night. It's on me if I don't. We're going to shift gears a little. He's going to really kind of start hammering the Jews a little bit right now in verse 17. So let's read. I'm going to read 17 through 20 all together. Here's what it says. Now you, so he's talking to probably once again half the room. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, I'm God's chosen person, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, verse 19 says, if you're convinced you're a guide for the blind, the blind Gentiles is what he means, a light for those in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Verse 21 says, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach stealing, do you not steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? And remember, Jesus told us, even if you don't act on it, if you lustfully think about adulterous things, you're good as committing it. You who abhor idols, do you not rob temples? Are you withholding part of your money because you're kind of a tightwad? So he's really speaking some hard stuff to the Jewish congregation. Because they were, once again, I already said this, but I'm going to kind of reinforce it. They had, they thought a double standard. We get judged differently because we're God's chosen people. They believed that they're, they were the caretakers of the law and that made them special. They also believed their history, what they're really saying, to put it kind of in modern terms, I have Abraham's DNA. It's in my bloodstream. God's going to know that. I get a free pass in the door. Do you know there's modern Jewish people that believe that? For many years, I think I've told a lot of you, I was an ICU nurse. I worked with a lot of doctors that were Jewish by birth. And what I mean by by birth, they didn't go to temple. They didn't practice. They were no more Jewish than you are as a Gentile. But they were convinced, and I would talk to them and kind of go back and forth in, in a loving way. I didn't want to get mean with them. But they were literally convinced they were going to heaven because of their DNA. And they weren't behaving any better than the people we read about. But they were in their mind going, that is completely false. That's a lie of Satan. They're going to the place they never want to be. Paul is talking to the same kind of crowd that believe, we've got DNA from Abraham. I'm good to go. Paul's going to say, no, you're not. Because let's look at our next main point. It's really important. Having a knowledge of the law, in our case, the New Testament, of Jesus' commands. Having a knowledge of Jesus' commands is not enough. Keeping them, keeping his commands is what Jesus requires. Knowledge is good, but it's not near enough. It's the obedience, the keeping to the best of our ability. Because God is gracious. I keep saying tonight, he doesn't demand perfection. He demands us to repent and try, and then he'll give the Holy Spirit to help us obey. And he's just trying to hammer the people that think they're special. You're not special. You're not keeping the law. You might have the law, but it's a head knowledge. You're not keeping it, even though you might have it. The same principle applies to us. Verse 23, you who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? And the answer was yes. As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. I think I'm going to skip the next. I had a chunk of verses on screen for us out of Ezekiel, but really what it says is, I'll just paraphrase it for lack of time. He says, 
Because of the Jewish nation behaving badly, all the pagan nations think I'm a mean God. You've blasphemed my name. You've, you've turned to worshiping idols. They know I brought you out in the Exodus, but you've abandoned me. And I will read the last verse. It says, it's not for your sake, people of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, which is punish the world, but for the sake of my holy name, which you profaned among the nations, the nations where you've gone. Because the Jews had abandoned God, just like a lot of the modern Jews have. And he's trying to point them out. You've, you've really profaned my holy name, and there's a price to pay for that. You think you're keeping the law, but you've profaned my name. You've done exactly the opposite. Let's read verse 25, another concept they think that was going to save them. Verse 25 says, circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you become as though you're not circumcised. Because a lot of the Jews, remember there was a controversy in the early church where they tried to add circumcision to the Gentiles? Some of these Jews in this audience still believe because they are circumcised, they're going to heaven. I've got this ritual and it's going to save me. But look what he says in 26. So then, if those who are not circumcised, in other words, the Gentiles, if they keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as if they were circumcised? So if these Gentiles keep the law, won't they be like better than the Jews that aren't? Is what Paul's asking them. Because he's correcting another mistaken belief. And we have to know the context. I think it's an interesting thing, so I want to tell it to you. Remember, I told you the rabbis were teaching there was a double standard, one judgment for Jews, one for Gentiles. They were also teaching this even more kind of interesting concept, which was, by the way, totally false. They taught that Abraham, their primary you know, father on earth anyway, he sat at the entrance of hell, and if you were circumcised, you couldn't go in. Abraham's literally sat at the gate of hell. If you're circumcised, go to heaven because you can't come in here. They thought circumcision for the males would save them. It was a ritual. As Gentiles, we would not relate to that. Many modern people are circumcised, but it's more for a, either traditional, it's when you're born, it's a health reason, maybe it's hygiene, different reasons. But we don't believe it saves us, or at least I hope we don't. They did. So we think, well, that's kind of weird. No ritual is going to save you. Well, let me ask you this one. Do we have any modern rituals that we think could save us? Your initial answer might be no, but what about baptism? At one point in your life, you don't have to answer, by the way, did you think baptism could save you? Do people still think that in our world around us? Do they think being sprinkled as an infant puts you into heaven? Do you think when grandma dies, if the priest shakes water on the casket, she goes to heaven? Does a ritual save you? The modern world sometimes thinks that. Now, hopefully here at Calvary you don't, because we don't teach that. We teach that baptism is an outward expression of something that already happened internally. It's a public expression of, I'm on team Jesus. That's what baptism is. And once again, our next baptism is September 17th. And here's my two-second baptism commercial. If you're watching online in the commons in this room, you can't get over-baptized. If you're kind of wondering, well, I don't really know that I meant it because I was kind of like a young person. I, was a, I wasn't a baby, but I was a kid. Or maybe you just did it because it was the thing to do. That's when I did it the first time. I would tell you, ask God, should I do it again? Don't ask me. Don't ask a pastor. Ask the Lord. Lord, should I get re-baptized? And he'll tell you. The Holy Spirit will clearly say, no, Dave, you're okay. But you already told me? Yes, do it again. Because you didn't mean it the first time. So I got baptized in an adult. At our baptisms, we'll baptize people from eight to 98. We've done people in their 90s because they were baptized as an infant. They asked God and God said, do it again. You can't get over baptized, but I would make the case you can be under baptized by being too young to understand it or doing it out of peer pressure like I did, doing it more like for the wrong reason. But once again, we would never tell you you have to. It's not going to get you in or out of heaven. It's a command from Jesus though Jesus did it. Did he need to? No, he was sinless. He did it to model it for me and you. We should do it to imitate the Messiah. So if you've been baptized as an infant, I would say just ask God, and if he says do it, show up on September 17th, and we'll help you out. 
but no condemnation. That's between, once again, you and the Lord. But you would just ask, like I did that day. Let's keep reading, verse 27. The one who is not circumcised physically yet obeys the law will condemn you, even though you've written the law and code and circumcision, or a lawbreaker. So Paul is saying the Gentiles who are not circumcised, if they obey the law, they're going to condemn you because you're the Jews and you're not obeying your own law. He's really kind of smacking them now, saying that you think the Gentiles are going to be judged harsher? Some of the Gentiles are obeying better than you are, and you're supposed to be the Jewish role models. But just so we're clear, even though these people were sort of keeping the law to the best of their ability, they weren't saved. That didn't make them righteous. They got saved in this early church the same way you and I did. They had to put their faith, their hope, and their trust in Jesus, no matter how good they were disobeying or obeying the law. What Paul is really trying to tell them in this section, no ritual can save you. None. No ritual. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because we know in Scripture, and I'm going to read one in a second right before we close, that rituals can't save us. We have to be righteous. But really in Scripture, who's righteous? Nobody. None are righteous. And that's going to come up in Romans chapter 3. So I don't want to read that verse yet. I'm going to read a different one. I'm going to read Ecclesiastes 7.20. Similar verse, same concept as the Romans 3 verse we'll get to in a week or so. Indeed, there is... Some people are righteous. Is that what it says? No. It says no one. None, no one, nada are righteous. No one who does what is right, in other words, 100% right, and never sins. That's what it would take to get into heaven by the law. Never sin. It's impossible. That's why they had animal sacrifice, which brings up our last point if you're taking notes. Righteousness can never save us. No matter how righteous we are, how much right living we think we have, it's only a right relationship. A personal relationship, as we say here at Calvary. A relationship of not knowing about Jesus. It's about knowing Jesus as your best friend. And when you know Jesus like that, look what the rest of that point says. It makes us want to obey it's not an arm-twisting headlock that God's got me in that I have to obey. It's I want to obey. I want to do as best I can to please my Heavenly Father. Hopefully you do too. But it's about that. It starts with a relationship. Not a ritual, a relationship. Let's look at the last couple of verses, and we're going to be closing. Verse 28. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, verse 20, I'm going to read the first half of 29. A person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, not the body, the heart, by who? The Holy Spirit. It says the Spirit, but that's the Holy Spirit, by the way. Not by the written code, not by the law. We're not circumcised in our heart by the law, we're circumcised in our heart by the Holy Spirit. He's our helper. He's our guide. He's who convicts us of our sin. He's who helps us change from that immoral lifestyle. He's our guide, our empower. He wants us to behave in a way that would please God. Let's read a verse out of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6. Let's read about this circumcision of heart. Another, another verse you're familiar with. The Lord your God... Your God, my God, will circumcise our hearts and the hearts of your descendants, your children, your grandkids, if they believe in Jesus, so that they, they may love him with all of their heart, our heart, your heart, with all your soul, and look what it says, and live. And what he means is live eternally. God will circumcise our heart so we can obey him better, so we find salvation through his son Jesus and live eternally in heaven as God's daughters and sons. That's the goal. And that was given way back in Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. Then Paul finishes with, I'm going to read the second half of 29 I had left out. He says, because he talked about, remember, you're circumcised by the Spirit. Such a person's praise, if you obtain this circumcision of the heart by the Holy Spirit, such a person's praise is not from other people, nobody else in the church audience, but from God. 
God knows if our heart has changed, is the way I would put that statement. Because we can look like Christians. I told you already, I was here in the back row for 10 years looking like a Christian. Was I one? No. I was not behaving right. Do you think God knew that? I already told you God's pretty smart. Of course he knows that. He knows if you're not behaving right. And we don't care about people's praise. It might look good externally. We, we read tonight that some of the Jews, some of the Gentiles, they looked like they were keeping the law. But internally, they were failing miserably. They were doing things behind closed doors they never wanted to talk about. God is our judge, not public opinion. He knows if my heart has been circumcised and changed and made new. He knows if I'm a new creation, another way to put that, because circumcision might be kind of weirding some of you out by now. It means, are you a new creation? Have you been changed? Has he cut away all the useless bad stuff? Has God cut away the bad stuff? Are you a new creation? And only God knows that. I don't know that you are, just like you didn't know I was all those 10 years, if you were here then. But God does. So he wants us, that's his goal, to obey him, to follow him, to let him, through the Holy Spirit, circumcise our heart. So we're going to pray for that. Maybe you're here tonight, maybe you're watching online, maybe you're in the commons. Maybe you've been kind of playing church like I did all those years. You've had one foot in the church, one foot in the world. Just pray a prayer. I would love to pray with you tonight, but you can go home and do it in your own bed. Maybe you don't want to come down here. That's okay. It's not about the magic words you would say anyway. It's about you just saying, God, help me obey you more. Help me follow you. Help me obey the codes you've put on my heart already. Holy Spirit, help me live a life that would please God the Father. So let's just pray that tonight. Lord, tonight... If anybody here needs to pray that prayer, I would just encourage them, Lord, to pray like we just talked about. Lord, we do all need you. Some in this room may be looking like they externally follow you, but Lord, I just would pray tonight they would seek you, they would follow you, they would just ask you, Lord, to circumcise their heart, they would commit to following you and you and your commands to the best of their ability, and you would also, Lord, send your Holy Spirit to empower them to do that. Lord, not a perfect obedience, but an attempt to do life the way you designed it through your written word and also empowered by your Holy Spirit just to lead a life that would please you. So, Lord, help us all do that. The mature believers, the new believers, the unbelievers, Lord, let all of us be circumcised by your Holy Spirit to obey you better. In Jesus' name we pray. We all said amen.